from all their transgression, he will redeem his own. Today we'll be looking at how this was already foretold through the prophet Isaiah so many years prior to the birth of Christ. We'll be reading from Isaiah 53, and you'll be able to find that on page 847 of your Q Bible. Isaiah 53, the Word of God. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So far, the word of God. We'll now also read from one of our confessions, the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort proclaim a summary of Scripture as we find them under the headings of unconditional election, limited atonement, total depravity, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. You'll be able to find the passage that we'll be reading from in chapter 2, article 3, the infinite val value of Christ's death. And you'll be able to find that on page 572 of your book of praise. This death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins, of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. 
beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning we're continuing to work our way through the doctrines of grace as we find them summarized in the canons of Dort. It's important to recognize that these are not just man-made teachings, because why then would we hold to them? No, as we work our way through the canons of Dort, we're going back to Scripture time and time again, seeing how they are a summary of what God already teaches us in Scripture. Now, if you remember from last week, those of you who are here, we touched down on the doctrine of election, the teaching of God's choosing a people for himself. Do you remember what we said about it? If you truly believe in God's sovereignty, that he's in control of everything, that we owe him everything for our salvation and that we contribute nothing but can only receive the free gift that he offers to us, you're already confessing that you believe in the doctrine of election. Because God chooses to show his mercy through some people and his justice through others. How can you know if you're elect? Truly repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole heart. Show yourself that you're doing this by submitting your whole life to him. See within yourself these fruits of election and you'll have the confidence that you can find salvation in Christ. But the next question that arises out of this is, how does that salvation happen? How are people saved? It's important to recognize that these two questions are very closely linked. Because to know that God saves some and allows others to remain in their sin to show his justice lets us know that the saving work of Jesus Christ is not applied the same way across the board. The saving work of Jesus Christ seems to be either not enough to completely save people or it is only applied to specific people. Do you recognize that? We know that Jesus died on the cross, but we also know that not everyone believes and is saved. So the question that's here before us today is, is Christ's payment for sin through his death limited in what it does, limited in its power, or limited in who it goes out to, to a specific number of people? And that's the question we'll be looking at today under the theme of the limited atonement of Christ. First of all, an infinite payment. Second, those not included. Third, the sins of the whole world. And fourth, the hope of faith. Now, in this article in the Canons of Dort, we read, This death of the Son of God is the only and most perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for sins, of infinite value and worth, abundantly sufficient to expiate the sins of the whole world. But we know that not everyone thinks that way. Do they? Some people say Jesus died for everybody. Others say Christ's work on the cross just made it possible for sinners to come to God. But is that really the case? Did Jesus Christ die for Peter and Paul in the same way that he died for Judas Iscariot? More than that, what about those texts that talk about Christ dying for the sins of the whole world? 
These are all very good questions. But before we can get into them, we need to understand a few things. To properly understand the reasons behind the atonement of Christ and how it applies to sinners, we need to understand a bigger and more basic concept. And that one is the question of the infinity of God. Once we understand that, understanding the nature of atonement becomes a bit simpler. God is infinite. With regards to his thoughts, we read in Psalm 147, verse 5, Great is our Lord, and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. With regards to his person, Solomon confesses in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. If God is indeed infinite, that means that everything about him is infinite. When an infinite God is righteously angry with sin, then man faces the wrath of an infinite God. Be it a little bit of wrath or a lot of wrath, that's still a little bit of infinity or a lot of infinity because we have an infinite God. Even the wrath against one sin, which you would maybe argue is a little thing, even, even the one sin, which you argue is maybe a little thing, has this wrath applied to it. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this because we are finite people. When we're angry, we're at most just, even at a most angry, we can only have a limited amount of anger. Even with people that we're angry with all our lives, we're limited because we can only have a certain amount of emotion running through our lives at once, running through our headspace at once. Kids, have you ever had it that your parents were trying to discipline you? And something that you or your sibling did or said made them laugh. It's hard for them to be serious and discipline you when they're laughing. However much you may know that you deserve it, isn't it? Or the rest of you. You may have someone in your life who you feel angry with every time that you meet them. But your wrath is finite. You don't think about them all the time because you simply don't have the mental space for it. No matter who it is, even you will start thinking about other things. Even you will laugh about things that have happened in your life. But it's not so with God. Because God is infinite, He can and does hold all things in His mind at once. He upholds all of creation from the birds of the air to the hairs that number your head, how much more can he not hold his thoughts concerning everything in his mind all at once? Everything about you, everything about me. God is either angry with sin or he is not. There is no in-between for him. But because God is either necessarily angry with sin or he would no longer... God is either necessarily angry with sin or he would no longer be truly righteous nor just. And since he himself is infinite, even anger against one sin is, by the simple nature of who God is, an infinite amount. So what does this mean for us? 
this means that we're in deep trouble. Because humanity sinned, humanity must pay for sin. But humanity can't pay for sin. As we saw before, even a little bit of God's wrath is still a little bit of infinity. And therefore, we ourselves, as finite humans, cannot bear the weight of the wrath of God. That's why Jesus had to come. He is fully man. He came in finite flesh, limited as a human being in all the ways that we were, by by hunger, by feeling tired, by feeling dread. And it was necessary for him to do that because the same human nature which, which sinned must pay for sin. He had to come in the flesh in order to pay for sin. But he also came to earth as fully God. And in being fully God, he was able to bear the weight of the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. In Christ's death on the cross, infinity met infinity. An infinite amount of payment met an infinite amount of wrath. And so that wrath was satisfied. And that was the only way that it could be. Only God could bear the weight of the wrath of God. Only Christ in his divine nature could pay for the debt that man had incurred. There are two things that I'd like to draw your attention to here. First, it means that everything is freely and fully paid for. There is no more payment necessary in the sight of God. When you come to God in true repentance and faith, you are freely and fully forgiven. There is nothing more that you can do or need to do to make atonement before God. Does this mean you don't need to make right what you've done wrong? Certainly not. As an image bearer of Christ, you have a responsibility to set things right. As an image bearer with Christ, you are given the gifts necessary to begin to set things right. And as an image bearer of Christ, and one who is filled with the Spirit, you will strive to set things right. One who continues in sin thinking that it's paid for anyways, that they're right with God anyways, demonstrates that they were never Christ's image bearers to begin with that the Spirit of God is not at work in them. As we read in Titus 2, verse 14, Christ is the one who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for Himself a people of His own who are zealous for good deeds. If Christ has redeemed you, you won't rest in sin. You'll run to Christ. And you'll seek to live as an image bearer of Christ, daily putting to death your sinful desires by the power of the Spirit. If you are such a person who remains satisfied to continue in sins, you need to repent and come before God in fear and trembling, begging for His mercy. But even so, our works are merely the fruit of faith. What comes out of people who already believe in Jesus Christ? 
As far as salvation itself is concerned, there's nothing more that we need to or can contribute. And that's the beauty of an infinite atonement. It's all satisfying. It's not Christ contributing half and us contributing the rest. It's not even Christ contributing 99.9% and us 0.1%. For, as we read in Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And in verse 4 and following, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We could not contribute anything. So God, being rich in mercy, contributed it all. How he frees us from our burdens. Beloved, do you feel that you believe but aren't sure that it's enough? That you need to contribute more? Did Christ die so that sinners could come to him? Or did Christ die for sinners? Did his work on the cross actually reconcile sinners to God? Think about that. Kevin DeYoung once wrote, Christ does not come to us merely saying, I've done my part. I laid down my life for everyone because I have saving love for everyone in the whole world. Now, if only you would believe and come to me, I can save you. Instead, he says to us, I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 5. I have purchased with my blood men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, verse 9. I myself bore your sins in my body on the tree so that you might infallibly die to sins and assuredly live for righteousness. For my wounds did not merely make healing available, they healed you. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Any works that you could contribute, if you could possibly contribute any at all, are only a drop of water compared to an infinite ocean of what has already been paid. Christ, with his suffering, has paid it. And he has paid it in the full. These are indeed, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 8, the unfathomable riches that we receive in Christ. The second thing I'd like to draw your attention to is a concern that's immediately brought to bear. But what about those who aren't atoned for? If Christ's atonement is infinite, doesn't that also mean that it goes out to everyone? Well, first of all, let's consider two concerns that we have with those who would argue that Christ's atonement does go out to everyone. That's the position of Arminians. No, not people from Armenia, the country, but followers of the theologian Arminius. This is what much of the evangelical world these days believes. They believe in the exact opposite of limited atonement or particular redemption or whatever else you would refer to it as. They believe in unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone. 
And they run into two problems. First is the problem of universalism, the belief that everyone will end up in heaven. If you recognize that Christ died to save sinners, not just make it possible for them to be saved, and you recognize that Christ made full payment for sin on the cross, but you reject that God limited that in any way, you will believe that absolutely everyone will go to heaven, no matter what they've done or what they believe. Christ's death, in that case, means that heaven is going to be the exact same as earth, and that hell that is warned about more often by Jesus than anyone else in the Bible is going to be empty. Some Christians do believe in this, but most don't. But if you do, if you don't believe this, even if you don't believe this, then you run into a second problem. The second problem is that if you don't believe that everyone is going to heaven, but you still believe that Christ died for everyone, then Christ did not actually save anyone on the cross at all. Because you can't have unlimited and infinite atonement at the same time. Unlimited atonement limits the scope of his death. Because it doesn't pay for all sins anymore. It limits the power of his death. It doesn't bring us to God anymore. All it does is open the way to believers to find their own way to God. And that flies directly in the face of what God himself teaches us. We read in 1 Peter 3 verse 18, For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The famous Reformed preacher Spurgeon once said, we're often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all would be saved. But it is the view that Christ didn't die for specific people that truly limits Christ's death. He goes on to say, we say Christ so died that he infallibly, unfailingly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Christ unfailingly secured salvation for specific people, and those for whom he did, they will be saved. And this lines up with what we read in Scripture, doesn't it? John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The sheep in contrast with whom? Well, we find the answer to that in Matthew 25, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he'll separate them one from the other as a sh shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he'll set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Christ, our good shepherd, lays his life down not for the goats but for sheep. In Matthew 1 verse 21, when the birth of Jesus was announced, we read, the virgin will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who are these people that are his? 
In John 6, Jesus says he came to save those whom the Father gave him. In John 17, verse 9, Jesus says to his Father, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Ephesians 5, verse 25, expands on this to say that Christ died for his bride, the church. And Ephesians 1, verse 4 says that they are those who are chosen in Christ. Christ's atonement while of infinite value, was for a definite number of specific persons. It was of infinite worth, however, for sufficient value for the sins of the whole world. And that's what brings us to the question of the sins of the whole world. We've seen from the above passages that Jesus will specifically save his people. We've seen that he lays down his life for the sheep and not the goats. What then do we make of passages like John 3 verse 16? There we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The question that arises here is, doesn't it say that God loves the world? Can't we tell everyone that God loves them without exception? There are two things to note with regards to passages like this. First, we need to see it within its context. Is John 3 verse 16 talking about God loving every individual without exception? That's not the case. We read in the verses that immediately follow, John 3 verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And John 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Seeing this, you cannot say to every individual without exception that God guarantees his love for them. If they do not believe, They have rejected God already, and they are condemned already. And that brings us to the second point that we need to recognize. Just because God doesn't show his love to certain individuals within a group doesn't mean he's not favorably inclined to the group as a whole. He sent his son into the world, clothed in humanity, in order to rescue humanity. God loves people. God loves human beings. Or he would never have sent his son to die in the first place. So when Jesus Christ came to die for sins, he came to die for the sins of humanity. That's why we get passages like 1 John 2 verse 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but for the whole world. God cares about the human race. And he sent his son to die for them. But while he died for people everywhere without distinction, there is no partiality with God, Romans 2 verse 11. While God doesn't hold one nation or people or group up as extra special, that doesn't mean that Jesus died for everyone without exception. Do you understand the difference between without distinction 
and without exception. Without exception means everyone. Without distinction means people from every tongue and tribe and language and people. Christ loved humanity and he died for humanity. He died for his people. His sacrifice was of infinite value to meet the infinite wrath of God. It was applied to people everywhere without distinction, but it was not applied without exception. So to the question, did he die for Peter and Paul in the same way that he died for Judas, let's look at the words of Jesus himself in John 17 verse 2. While I was with them in the world, he says, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the one doomed to destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Did he die for Peter and Paul in the same way that he died for Judas? The answer to that is no. Because to say yes would point to a sacrifice of Jesus that is not enough. It's only a partial sacrifice to which we need to contribute the rest. But as we read in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And that's the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. What he begins, he also finishes. What he demands, he also supplies. Christ's sacrifice has power and his atonement is enough for all of our sins. His sacrifice is sufficient for the whole world, but it is efficient meaning it works for his people, those whom he has chosen. One person suggested in light of what we've learned today that it it takes away from God's goodness to hold to this. It takes away from God's goodness to say that he only offers salvation to some and not to others. But is that really the case? God's goodness is highlighted more strongly in its display in a different way for those whom he did not choose. Because there his goodness meets his justice. We're brought to see that God is a God who is grieved by sin. That God does not simply sweep it under the rug, but that he takes it very seriously. We stand in awe of a God who is holy. A God who is righteous. But more than that, we stand in awe of who our Savior is and what He does for us in rescuing us from the just judgment of God that the rest of mankind falls under because, rightly, we ought to be under that same judgment. It grants us comfort when we see those who reject God. Sometimes the fear arises that we might reject too. That if God worked faith in the first place, He might not carry us the distance. But he promises that if he works faith in the first place, his sacrifice will be enough to carry carry us the distance. It might be limited in its scope, but it's not limited in what it can do for us. His power is infinite. And so this teaching is not meant to cause us fear but it's meant for our comfort. 
Because of this, we're brought to see that the teaching of limited atonement is not an artificial framework in which we squeeze in Christ our mediator, but it's a believing reflection on what has been revealed to us in Christ, who is our faithful Savior. He doesn't wander or waver. We don't have a shaky foundation when we put our trust in Him. As we reflect in Lord's Day 1, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own but belong with body and soul, both in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Him can say, I owe Him everything. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. There is nothing that I can do, I can need to contribute. When Christ said, it is finished, He meant it. It's done. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And in order to encourage us, He sends us His Holy Spirit. By His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Do you fear that this does not apply to you? Do you fear that God has somehow passed you over? Brothers and sisters, all you need to do then is ask yourself the question, do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I put my trust in Him for my entire salvation? Do I constantly repent, leaving all my sins and sorrows at the foot of the cross and submitting my whole life as a living sacrifice of thankfulness to my Lord Jesus? If you do not, then the time to do so is here and now. Right here, right now. Don't wait. But if you do, then take heart. He who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion. For his sacrifice has infinite value. As the hymn so beautifully says, the hope of faith shall not deceive us. The Savior's words are true and sure. Our friends on earth may fail and leave us, but Jesus' faithfulness endures. Who limits his dominion ever? He rules creation from on high. All that his love and grace endeavor shall him his power not deny. Amen.